Hey everyone, this is Jet Set student Kristen Yunez. Thanks for listening to the Jet Set Rehab Podcast. Before we get started with our interview from two of the leading specialists in ACL rehab, I would like to let you know about the Jet Set Rehab Education. It's a company ran by two physical therapists that provides continuing education for all rehab specialties. Every class is small, every class is built in networking events, and every class is in a fun location. Take a moment to check out their website, jetsetrehabed.com. Their 2018 calendar looks great. It includes places like Cabo San Lucas, Mammoth, Mind, Barone. It's just a better way to take a con ed course. Their guest speakers are two amazing clinicians and leaders in the field of ACL rehab. Both are teaching a course for Jet Set Rehab Education next year. Enjoy this interview with Sylvia Zipons and Carol Mack, interviewed by Jet Set co-founder Randall Glazier. the Jet Set Rehab Education Podcast. and We have two guests for you today, and if you're downloading this, you are probably interested in ACL Rehab, and we have two of the main specialists in the field right now. Why don't you guys introduce yourself and then kind of stay, say a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into um, your interest in anterior cruciate ligament rehab. You want to go first, Sylvia? Well, I guess I can... Yeah, I can go first. Um, So my name is Sylvia Zupan. Uh, Currently, I'm an associate professor at Washington University um, School of Medicine program in physical therapy. I've been a clinician working in the outpatient orthopedic realm for about 15 years now. Um, And I guess my interest in ACL rehab is kind of a a twofold deal. So um, I am one of those experienced it firsthand. And so um, from that, got a little bit of an interest in it just from the start. Um, my first ACL tear was when I was in PT school, and I didn't know anything about really anything because I was in my first year of PT school. But my interest really peaked actually when I was already out in clinical care, and I started seeing that some patients after reconstruction did a whole lot better than other patients. And I was trying to figure out what was different about those individuals um, and why some seemed to have no problems during rehab, others had greater problems. Um, and I started to uh, uh, dabble into looking at some of the um, psychological or psychosocial aspects of rehab that could be influenced in that um, and started finding a whole host of other researchers that were interested in it and uh, tried to just track their work and see where it led. And then one thing led to another, and I started looking at all the in, uh, factors from an um, objective strength, balance um, uh, standpoint, and then kind of mixing with some of the psychosocial stuff. Um, and when I started looking at that, I realized, geez, there's not like a whole lot of guidance for clinicians on how they should optimally progress patients through rehab. Mm-hmm. So I kind of made it my personal mission to try to figure that out, not only for myself, but then also to see if I could share that information with other people that seemed similarly lost or confused. Okay, great. And then, uh, our other guest today is Carol Mack. Why don't you explain, uh, same question to you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I'm Carol Mack. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I have my own PT practice. It's called CLE sports PT and performance. It's kind of a, it's basically a combination of sports rehab and performance. Like the name says, try to kind of 
advertise exactly what I'm, what I'm doing. Um, I got an ACL rehab and, and injury prevention. I played college soccer. Um, knock on wood, I don't know how I did not tear an ACL through um, college or high school or just rec league after because I have like every risk factor that <laughs> we're going to talk about in the course. But um, when I was in PT school, I started to get back into coaching high school soccer and ended up doing my like, capstone kind of final clinical project for my DPT on an ACL injury prevention program. I started looking into the research and it was, it was kind of fascinating to me that with doing the right neuromuscular training, you could try to prevent these injuries and that you could see a change in um, the neuromuscular function of specifically female athletes. So I ended up implementing one of those programs at the high school that I coached at. And then things kind of snowballed from there. Um, I began working at Cleveland Clinic and I ran their match fit soccer program. So I saw um, athletes either coming in for injury prevention or people who had ACL surgery and they needed kind of a bridge program to get back onto the field. So that's really where my two kind of biggest um, interests are. So that sports performance aspect and, and the prevention, and then just trying to figure out how to get people back on the field, the, the whole um, lack of confidence that they may have in their knee or just trying to rebuild power and agility, quickness, all those things mm. have been, uh, I, I think, something we really need to work with athletes and see them get back on the field and make gains in those areas. Okay. Now, where did you play college soccer? Uh, at Duquesne University in Duquesne. Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Yeah, I played college soccer for San Francisco State. So, oh, nice, nice. So similar. Nice. You guys are real athletes. I'm the uh, weekend warrior athlete, <laughs> and the he played played in sports, but uh, uh, just enjoy. I mean, I enjoyed being part of a team, but I was never that good. So, so but you did tear your ACL. Now, what? Oh, how did that help? Yeah, you? I did. I was playing. Yeah. Well, it, well, it, it helped me from the standpoint I was playing IM basketball, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, to, to de-stress from physical therapy school. And uh, my IM team, we happened to be playing WashU's uh, redshirt varsity team. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about uh, Division Three women's basketball, uh, WashU's basketball team is phenomenal. Their women's basketball team has, like, won championships uh-huh. and have been great. And uh, so – yeah, so we were losing probably something obscene like 30 to 4 with like in the first half. And so uh, I was playing point guard and was trying to be really smooth and cross over, and I completely missed my hand. So the other girl stole the ball, ran it down the court for an easy layup. But I was raised to never give an easy layup, so I ran down the court after her, just took off. It was a absolute non-contact injury. I don't know whether it happened on the takeoff or the landing. I just knew that I couldn't stand up and walk afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so – I ended up going to the emergency room. They told me, hey, let's just wear this immobilizer for a while. You'll be fine. And I didn't find out that I'd torn my ACL, though probably about three or four weeks later because I had to go to uh, physical therapy for a little while and had stiff knee, um, you know, functional deficits. I was definitely not a coper in any sense of the term uh, uh, after the injury. And so, yeah, once I found out it was torn, I was basically presented with the only option was to reconstruct it. And again, I didn't know any better. I was a first year PT student. So I went off and, um, and did it without really trying any other rehab beforehand. So I, I don't know if that was the right decision for me. I can't change it. So it is what it yeah. is. Well, yeah, somebody like myself, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. I feel like it helps me deal with patients that have the same injury. Because uh, unless you go through it, sometimes Definitely. you don't uh, fully understand like that. Yeah. the emotional aspect. I feel like, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I feel like there are some patients who are so, and this is where that psychosocial part comes in, that are so fearful of like 
hurting themselves right off the bat. And I'm like, you don't understand. Your graft is as strong as it's ever going to be, like right now, right as it's going in. It's going to actually weaken as you progress, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks just because it has to, you know, become mm-hmm. uh, go from becoming like a tendon to a ligament, for example, or, uh, or what have you, whatever, depending on where the graft source is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to tell them, look, I know exactly what you're feeling and that fear and what you have going through your head right now. And I'm here to tell you it's okay. And I'm not going to make you do anything that's not safe for you to do. And I don't know if, if that gets the patients to trust me more because I've been through it. I don't know, but I, I like to use that only with the patients that I feel like I have to share that mm-hmm. with. Um, you know, I don't, I don't go off telling every single one of my patients right. <laughs> that I've had, uh, you know, had me. But like the ones that really need to know that it's that it's okay and seem to need that extra push, they seem to 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 I don't know relate to me a little bit better once I've told them that or trust me more. I don't know. Could be in my head, but <laughs> all right. So here's here's a question uh, for both of you. This is from at Michael Curtis PT on Twitter. He asked, "How does a meniscus and or MCL along with an ACL surgery change the rehab process?" and return to sport compared to ACL alone. So, yeah. Carol, you want to take that one first? Yeah, good. Yeah, Carol. I can take that one first. Good question. I saw that on Twitter, which is kind of nice, but I definitely appreciate the, the questions that are coming in. Um, in terms of MCL injury, my experience is a lot of our surgeons will delay the ACL reconstruction until the MCL is at least calmed down. I wouldn't say fully healed. Um, but uh, most surgeons will wait to do surgery until the the swelling and the range of motion is improved. And sometimes with that MCL injury, it's hard to get that range of motion back. So it will delay the surgery just maybe a couple weeks longer um, until that is a little more stable. In the meniscus injury, it's it can affect it in both, both ways. Um, one is if the surgeon ends, ends up doing a meniscus repair, depending on where that repair is, sometimes they may delay weight-bearing. And, and I know a lot of the surgeons that I've worked with, when I first got out of PT school, every patient had a meniscus repair was restricted in weight bearing for four to even six weeks afterward. Mm-hmm. Now we're finding that depending on where that repair is there, sometimes there can be some weight bearing on it. Um, so things aren't as slow in the beginning as, as they used to be, but it depends on the surgeon, depends on the case and, and having communication with them is really important in managing that, that patient early on in terms of outcomes for both of those injuries at the end of rehab. Um, they usually don't affect the outcome or the return to sport that much. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a couple weeks later because of what happened on the front end, but um, patients with either a meniscectomy or a repair or with that MCL injury, things are, are pretty much either healed or repaired in there. And, um, and really, in terms of return to sport, doesn't seem to delay it if, if things were addressed the right way in the beginning. Okay. Yeah, and I, I, I would agree with you, Carol. I think the, the challenge that I see in terms of outcomes is just the potential early delay in rehab. Um, if the meniscus is repaired and if the surgeon has imposed various precautions on that patient, your, your rehab isn't being delayed by the ACL reconstruction. It's being delayed by the precautions to protect the meniscal repair. So we have surgeons that take, within the same clinical practice, they take three very different approaches to how um, uh, the meniscal repair is, is handled and treated after surgery. So we have one surgeon that if he repairs the meniscus, unless it's a massive repair where he's put on like four or five sutures in there, he just lets them, you know, weight bearer is tolerated. It's as if they had a meniscectomy. So he doesn't really have any special precautions. 
We have another surgeon that um, will brace the patients in full extension, allow them weight bearing as tolerated, but only if they're braced in full extension for the first four to six weeks post-surgery. Um, in that time, if they're not weight bearing, they can range their knee as much as they want. So there's no like 90 degree stop or anything like that. It's just as tolerated. Um, and then after four to six weeks, then they walk around in the hinge brace from zero to 90, still weight bearing is tolerated. Um, and uh, then after um, that 12 week window, then it becomes a no brace period. And then at 16 weeks, then finally they're allowed to have no brace and then they can start doing um, like higher level sports things. Um, and then we have a third surgeon who takes almost what I would say is, is more like the approach that Carol was talking about, about the protected weight bearing, um, where he doesn't typically let his patients weight bear at all after surgery for at least a couple of weeks. And then he does sort of a progressive weight bearing plan after that, where you can add about 25% weight bearing every you know week or two, assuming symptoms are okay. And these are all for presumably the same surgery. So I think the delay in return to sport for some of these individuals depends on whether they were allowed to go along as if nothing else had happened or if they have those restrictions um, early. Otherwise, ultimately, I think the outcomes are, are the same with respect to the, the meniscal repairs. I can't say that we see a lot of um, uh, anything greater than like a grade one, maybe a two MCL tear um, with ACL reconstructions. And the few that we do, um, same with, as with Carol, they, they tend to wait till the swelling is down, um, that the range of motion is up. And then, of course, early in rehab, you just have to be a little bit more uh, cautious about the valgus stresses on the knee, mm -hmm. but not like you wouldn't be doing that anyway um, to protect the, the ACL. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, uh, at Michael Curtis PT, for that question. And uh, that you kind of touch upon uh, something there, Sylvia. Whereas you have a a variety of protocols, even in the same practice, right? So yes, you know you've been rehabbing these for quite a while. Do you see a difference in the type of protocols? You know, and more specifically, what happens in the first few weeks? Does that make a difference as far as a rehab goes? Yeah, so um, with post-surgical precautions, clearly um, the surgeon always knows what they did in the surgery. And so if they tell me I'm not allowed to do X, Y, and Z to protect their surgery, I'm 100% going to go with what they tell me oh, to yeah. do. Um, Listen to the no surgeon. No questions <laughs> yes. asked. Right. When it comes to things like those, uh, what I like to call sometimes those cookie-cutter protocols, mm -hmm. um, there are some protocols where it says, okay, in weeks zero to two, you're allowed to do this, this, and this. And then weeks two to four, almost without question and no criteria to progress to weeks two to four, you can start doing these kinds of things. Um, those, those are the protocols I have a little bit more trouble with um, because I feel like, and, and we know from the literature that progressions from one stage to another in rehab shouldn't be strictly time-based. I mean, time has something to do with it, obviously, because of healing of the tissue um, and what we know, again, about um, the time it takes for uh, 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 the graft to mature. But they can't be strictly time-based. Uh -huh. I think the protocols that are better are the ones that have some kind of criteria to progress an individual from one stage to the other, whether it be you got to be able to do 20 straight leg raises with no lag before you can progress or that you have, um, you know, only moderate amount of swelling in your knee or you have a certain amount of range of motion or something like that. There's got to be a little bit more rhyme and reason to why somebody is allowed to progress from one stage to the other. Um, here at WashU, because we're fortunate to work with um, uh, uh, the WashU orthopedic physicians, Dr. Rick Wright is actually one of the physicians that worked with the Moon Group, which is a multi-center orthopedic network where they um, developed this 
one version of an ACL post-op rehab protocol. It's actually easy to find if you just Google moon protocol ACL. Um, It's an example of a protocol that does try to make some attempt at like criteria-based progression from one stage to the next. But even if you look at that protocol, it starts getting a little bit more vague as you progress further into the rehab. So it leads the clinician to have to make a lot more clinical decisions, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. But I think if we want to be a little bit more systematic on how we can figure out who's being successful in their decision making and maybe who's not being as successful, uh, that we need to make those criteria a little bit more clear or concrete. Um, And that's one of the things that Carol and I are hoping to accomplish with this course um, is to help clinicians Mm -hmm. with those uh, gray areas. Yeah. And Carol, can you touch upon like what are some of the uh, milestones that you use in the clinic? So like for example, before you remove the brace, before you get rid of the crutches, when you can start um, jogging, do you, what are your uh, criteria that you use? Um, right off the bat, like when when I let somebody go without the crutches, the my two biggest things I'm looking for are um, quadriceps control, and then also um, their full knee extension. Mm-hmm. And I, I think those two go hand in hand because sometimes somebody can get full knee extension on the table, but then when you get them up to start walking, they don't have that that terminal knee control. So they will keep walking with a bent knee um, and, and they're not using their quad properly. So I will protect them with um, crutches until I know that they can walk without um, with, the, with a normal gait pattern, at least normal in terms of extension. Mm-hmm. Um, other obviously swelling and pain and all those things you know, play into it too, where I, if I need to protect weight bearing a little bit because they maybe just are swelling a lot or they're not, they're not dealing well with pain. I'll do that too. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely in favor of, as Sylvia mentioned, the, the criterion based guidelines. Um, I was kind of, I guess you could say brought up on the moon guidelines too. Um, least Cleveland clinic was part of that, that moon group. Um, so I, w- I was lucky to have a set of guidelines that were a little bit vague to let the clinical decision-making come into play too. Um, but they did, they did have criteria for progressing in the next stages. In terms of returning to running, um, there's not a ton in the literature that supports like, I mean, we have we have data on hop testing before return to sport or, or other things. But what I use for return to running is I use um, like a, a kind of a lateral step down test that I, I guess, devised, um, just felt like it fit where I will measure um, how many times in a minute a patient can do um, a, a step down just lowering single leg lowering and then being uh-huh. able to tap the heel of the leg and I'll, I'll grade that step according to their height um uninvolved leg versus involved leg and i'm looking at the control um as well as the number of repetitions so if they have a lot of valgus and and, and just a, a really really shaky quad that i know that they're not ready the next thing that i have them do is i have them do um 20 what i call like like a leap and hold where they have to kind of take a long step or maybe leap and hold and stabilize on the involved leg and I compare to the uninvolved and I'm just looking at motion quality. If it's valgus, if they're, if they're very quad dominant, if they're coming down on an extended knee, um, just because running is really a breakdown of that leaping motion, mm-hmm. you know, repeatedly. Um, obviously range of motion, swelling, general strength, all of those things are important to me. A wide balance is something I've also used because that's a good objective thing that's in the literature talking about. Um, quad strength and control. So those are those are my my criteria for returning to running. Um, and I know Sylvia and I have been back and forth on email with just kind of some other criteria that we've both been um, 
both developing to present on for the course and just in, in clinical use for our, our daily uh, clinical practice. Okay. Now, yeah, and I think Carol's hitting on a, a good point too, if I may, yeah. Randall, just real quick. Um, so one of the things that, that uh, we want to emphasize and that I think needs to be better emphasized in all these protocols is the movement quality. It's, it's frustrating to have the amount of evidence that we have about how movement quality relates to initial ACL injury risk and then even re-injury risk. And if you look at the criteria um, that people are, are recommending for return to sport, at least for the past, you know, until about maybe two, three years ago, it was all objective. Here's what my quad strength is. Here's what my hamstring strength is. Here's what my um, limb symmetry index on the, the hot testing is. But there was no mention or any way to try to objectively measure somebody's movement quality. Um, I know in the recent um, uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, the consensus guidelines for return to sport, they're emphasizing now on how important it is to factor in somebody's movement quality into uh, the return to play decision making. But I think that we need to do a better job of trying to quantify how we even say somebody has good movement quality with that. And I know that's a struggle that the profession as a whole has even within itself of, hey, well, what's good movement quality? What's bad movement quality? Isn't there a variation in the uh, types of movements that an individual should have in sports? Um, is there such a thing as normal, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that's the challenge that we're facing right now um, as to trying to standardize those things. But again, um, my hope is that between Carol and myself um, with this course that we can try to shed a little bit of light on what we look at and how we, I think, systematically do that as we're looking at patients, even within ourselves. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point that, yeah, the protocols don't seem to share the same criteria as uh, movement quality. Um, going, going back to uh, one thing that Carol said as far as uh, the return to walking, you, you want to see terminal knee extension, uh, good quad control. Do you guys have any insight as to why the quadriceps muscles always tend to be very difficult to fire following the surgery? You know, this is like the million-dollar question, right? Like, if we understood this yeah. better, it would be it'd solve a whole lot of problems. Um, I think, I mean, I think there's a couple of factors related to it. Um, I mean, I, I I do think swelling has something to do with it because it seems like the people with the that have the lags for the longest are also the ones that carry around the swelling in the super patellar pouch the longest. Mm. Um, I think I saw something recently where somebody uh, argued that that wasn't the case, but. Clinically, I feel like it is, um, whether that's true or not, I feel like it is. Um, I think that if somebody has um, a patellar tendon graft, um, they're more likely to have a little bit more of a quad lag early just because you took out part of the extensor mechanism yeah. um, to make your, your ACL, and so that, that lends itself to further problems. Um, plus, there's a, the pain inhibition component, um, uh, I think, as well. Um, so. I mean, I, I, my first ACL, it was a patellar tendon graft, and I remember the, the first day that I went to PT, um, unfortunately, the pain medication was making me nauseous, so I decided not to take it before I went to PT, um, which I, I'm imagining that most people would never advise a patient to do, but uh, I remember that first straight leg raise that I tried to do, and it felt like my leg was going to break in half, and I, I, you know, I feel like that's the fear that people have when they lift their leg. It might be a subconscious inhibition in many ways, too. Um, seems like the people that don't have that fear, um, they don't have the lag. So yeah, I wonder how much of a psych yeah, psychological component there is in that. Um, and then probably the last one that I wonder about, too, is just the nerve blocks um, that, that the surgeons are doing from a pain relief stand 
standpoint. I know the femoral nerve block used to be really common, and I think they're switching. Well, some of our surgeons are switching to, to the types of blocks um, and whatnot that they're using, but I always wondered how much that factored into it as well. Yeah, that's what I always wondered as well, because you know sometimes you see a total knee replacement. You're less likely to see that lack of uh, quad control sometimes, and they have just as much swelling. So I don't know. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's beyond, I can't figure it out. You have any uh, insight to that, Carol? Yeah, I mean, I agree with with what Sylvia said that it's it's probably multifactorial. Yeah. But it, it's something that in um, to even go back on what we had talked about earlier with um, a meniscus injury or an MCL injury, if, if I do have a patient that's non weight bearing for any reason or limited weight bearing or restricted, um, something that I noticed is that it, it does take me longer to get their quad back, um, to get their quad function, to get them being able to have that terminal quad control um, in the beginning. And I do think it's related to either either pain, swelling. Um, an MCL injury is quite painful. So if you do have that in the beginning or, or you know, limited weight bearing from the meniscus, but um, not having that weight bearing stress and maybe a fear of putting weight on it because of all those other factors really does affect, affect the quad later on. So something that I've been very cognizant on of anybody who is limited weight bearing is educating them on that. Like you're, you're not using your quad because a lot of patients, especially when they're active, if, I mean, I'm sure we've all had this where they, where they come in and and the first thing they will do is show me their, their pancake quad, as they call their, the fact that they grow tone in it. And it's scary, especially for the soccer players and take a lot of pride, the muscle tone that they have and then to see that. So they know. And, and so what I'll do is I'll talk to them and say, you're not, you, because of the surgery, because of the swelling, because of the pain, and I list out all the reasons, and then I say, part of the, you know, the first step in getting this back is we have to use it. And maybe you're limited in weight bearing right now because you had a meniscus repair, but that means that you have to work it even harder, you know, every time you're non-weight bearing. So maybe we double up on the quad sets. Maybe we look into an NMAS unit. Maybe we up your reps on straight leg raise. All of those things, and then as soon as they are weight bearing, I, I really, really try to emphasize how important it is to use your quad again when you're walking. Got it. I like that term, Carol, the pancake quad. I'm going to have to start <laughs> using that one. It wasn't, I, I had, I stole that from a patient. <laughs> I love it though. That's like, I mean, it's exactly what they look like. I mean, you know, after surgery, it's, it's a pancake quad. That's a great descriptor. It's a, it's a tough thing. I mean, I, I feel bad. They're in pain. They've had the surgery, they're out. And then they're, they're starting to lose that, that muscle tone. I always tell people that it comes back when you least expect it. Like in a couple yeah. months, you're going to look down and all of a sudden it's going to be back and, mm. and, and just out of nowhere, you know, but if you look at it every day <laughs> and dwell on it, you know, other than having to work on it every day, um, you know, it, it takes time, but it does come back. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, besides the uh, lack of quad control, which is, you know, that's very typical after the surgery, do you, what other uh, common impairments do you guys find are very consistent with people that have had a ACL repair? Let's say non-contact injuries, especially. Well, I think it's that that movement pattern that we were talking about. So, um, what what the challenge is 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 trying to correct what I, what we'll call like uh, uh, suboptimal movement patterns that this patient has probably been doing for eons. You know, not just because they've had surgery, but because they've always done it this way. You know, they've always gotten up. Um, out of a chair with excessive hip adduction and medial rotation. They've always gone upstairs with a hamstring dominant strategy and not a quad dominant or glute dominant mm-hmm. strategy, you know? So I think for me, the the biggest challenge is trying to break down those movement patterns that 
they don't understand why we're harping on quite so much. Even if I tell them like, look, this is probably associated with your non-contact ACL injury and it's not related to your surgery at all. Um, and then also explaining to them, that's why I'm also training their, their non-surgical leg so hard so that that leg, which to be honest, is at the same risk, if not greater for an ACL tear, you know, within the first year or two after surgery, um, they don't always understand why I'm harping so much on their non-surgical side. Yeah. Now, uh, go ahead, Carol. Uh. I'm sorry. I I agree with all like that. Those movement patterns are are such a big deal to to try to just work on and just try to, especially when they have that time in rehab. When you're in a six to nine month rehab, um, you know we have the time to work on it, and 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 I really think it's important to try to um, just explain to people why we're working on those things. The other thing that I think is really important is limb confidence. So there was a study that came out out of the moon guidelines that um, more than half of American football players, they looked at American football players um, in high school and they, they took out the uh, seniors just to control for people who maybe didn't come because of their senior year. Um, those athletes, I guess more than half did not come back because of um, fear of re-injury and lack of confidence in their knee. So to me, that's pretty staggering that um, it, in, in, when we look at what is the lack of confidence, is it because their quad isn't functioning, um, you know, from right off the bat and they've had this kind of shaky, wobbly knee that they're trying to walk on? Is it the actual injury themselves that is a non-contact and, and the fear, you know, is this going to happen again? Um, are there just through the rehab process, you know, has that started to have them lose confidence in their legs? So trying to address that early on is, is huge. Um, and, and to me, that's a pretty big number that many people not returning to sport for something like that, just that they're not confident in their leg. Right. Especially if you consider too going along with that, Carol, that the primary reason that these patients are getting ACL reconstructions is to go back to sport. That's like, if you ask them, you know, before they have surgery, well, why do you want to have the surgery? It's, I mean, yeah, maybe it's because the surgeon told me I had to do this, but it's, if I want to go back to a cutting, pivoting type of sport, I need to have the surgery. And so to have that large number of patients that have the surgery and then say, eh, you know what, I, I don't want to do it anymore. It, it's a little, it's a little interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going right. back to, you know, some things you were mentioning, uh, American football, you know, one of the things that uh, I often see is like the entire offensive line will have knee braces on. It's kind of like a preemptive strike to reduce the risk if I'm assuming like a knee injury, right? What, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Because I haven't seen much that says that that prevents anything or that, that it, uh, you know, that has any effect at all. What do you, what do you guys think? I'd, I'd say that the last study that, and this has probably been several years ago that I, that I looked at, at it, but uh, that looked at the effectiveness of knee bracing to prevent um, knee injuries, that the only thing that they found um, that the braces could prevent were maybe like all injuries, but everything mm. else was kind of a wash. And if you think about just um, uh, uh, Sam Bradford is, is always my example. When he was playing for the St. Louis Rams, uh, he tore ACL, came back the next season, and within the first game or two, he was wearing um, what I can assume is, is like a Don Joy ACL uh, brace on and he tore his ACL wearing that brace. So I don't think that the braces um, can prevent it. If you consider that, you know, ACL tears, it, it's not just like a straight one direction type of motion. There's, there's rotation, there's torque, you know, going in a rotatory fashion that a brace is never going to be able to prevent. Mm. Um, and so I think there are definitely things that maybe, uh, maybe the bracing helps a little bit with proprioceptive input. Maybe it helps, you know, with 
um, uh, an individual's confidence in their leg doing what it can. Maybe it, you know, just helps if it's like a neoprene sleeve type of thing. Maybe it helps with um, edema management if they're if they they are struggling with that in some some capacity. But but yeah, to to my knowledge, the braces don't prevent anything, although they might help initially for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that seems to be what I've seen too in the literature that, and there was one study in skiing that um, the number of, and, and I have it, I have it in one of the slides actually for our course, because we're going to talk about return to skiing and just some of the sports specific return to soccer, return to basketball. Um, but there was a study that looked at braced um, skiers returning versus non-braced and that the braced, I'm sorry, the non-braced um, skiers did have a higher retail rate in, in skiing. But that's a yeah. little bit different mechanism. You know, um, cutting and skiing, I mean, you're already kind of planted on the ground other than, you know, hitting bumps or certain turns or that kind of thing versus football where you're, you know, non-weight bearing for a second and then come down in a deceleration moment, you know, to plan and cut. So, um, yeah, I, I, the, the moon guidelines to keep going back to that, but the, I think that's kind of the biggest outcome studies that we do have on ACL injuries right now. Um, did it come out? There was one paper that they did put out that did not show a significant um, difference in outcomes in braced versus non-braced um, athletes. Okay. Now, uh, to both... Yeah, oh, go w- ahead, Sylvia. Yeah, and I would say one more thing is just um, that I think uh, uh, needs to be pointed out is if, if uh, there are some surgeons who say, you know, patients can't go back unless they're using, you know, some kind of post-op ACL brace. Um, and so I do get patients that, that come with that um, not many of our surgeons, but um, but a lot of the, the like we get students from out of state um, because they're attending college or, or grad school here. But um, training and, and rehabbing the patient both with the brace on, but then also with the brace off, I think is really important. Um, and I've seen um, and heard of too many clinicians where they'll only train the patient with the brace on, um, but never do anything with the brace off. And I think that's, I mean, you're setting your patient up for, for a problem if, if they become either so reliant or think that they only need to have the brace or, or they only need to think about these rehab movements when they've got the brace on, but then they can go back to moving poorly, you know, with the brace off. Um, I think it just, it becomes a problem. So, um, so I would highly recommend that any therapist that has a patient with the brace or that wants to use the brace when they go back, they got to practice doing stuff with and without it. All right. Yes, I absolutely agree. I've seen that. I've seen that before too. And I think it, it had, you, you have to, you have to train the knee without anything assisting it. If you're really going to send somebody back to a contact sport, they need to be completely confident in that knee without a brace. Um, I will have patients that I do have some, some patients that end up being braced either because of the surgeon or just because maybe we've looked at a bunch of other factors and, and we feel like that's the best, you know, like a soccer goalkeeper, you know, they're going to be diving on it. Um, it just different situations like that, that I have braced people. And when that's the case, we do, 98% probably of the rehab without the brace on. Um, I will have them on that first week or two when they get their brace. I will have them bring it back in. And a lot of times if it's a soccer player, I'll have them work on foot skills in the brace because a lot of my experiences, a lot of the soccer players actually hate wearing it and they worry that their touch on the ball is going to be different. So it's a, it's more of just an education piece of them wearing it, me saying, you're going to be okay. Your, your skill level is going to come back. Like, look, we're just going to practice it until you get used to it, that kind of thing. But, um, when they're working out on their own, like home program, um, as long as it's a non-contact situation, I, I typically don't have them in a brace and I don't have them in a brace in a clinic. Okay. Thanks guys. That, that's actually incredibly helpful. 
because uh, that's like a very common question that we get a lot. Um, off topic, uh, one you know one thing I bring up you know with my residents and stuff is that um, you know I'll tell them like you're asking the wrong questions. Now I I sent you guys an email of some topics I wanted to discuss today. Is there anything that I left out? Like maybe I asked was asking the wrong questions that you guys feel is important for clinicians to know. I mean, I think this is a, a great discussion. I'm, you know, I'm personally, uh, uh, what I've enjoyed in this process is actually, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth off of Carol to find out what she might emphasize that I don't or, you know, and, and vice versa. Uh, but I think what um, the, the point that I just keep wanting to make over and over is just important how uh, of, of looking at movement quality. Um, if we're not looking at the movement quality and we're just trying to resolve physical impairments like strength, range of motion, swelling, et cetera, um, rate of force development, uh, then we're not doing the patient, you know, a favor. We're really not. And, and so it's frustrating that with as much information as we know about, um, about re-injury risk and how it's tied to movement and, and initial injury risk and how it's tied to movement, um, that there are still many patients coming to my clinic um, after they've started rehab elsewhere that nobody ever talked to mo about movement to them. And they have the worst movement, you know, that, that I, you know, I've seen. So that's probably the frustrating part for me. So if there's anything that, you know, any clinician um, that, that uh, doesn't have the advantage of attending tons of continuing education courses and updating themselves on the latest recommendations and guidelines, if I would say, you know, if you had a couple of papers to read, I recommend you, you read some of that early, early work by, uh, you know, people like the, the Tim Hewitts, the Mark Paternos. You know, those guys that, that were talking about how important movement quality is um, with respect to ACL injury. Okay. And, uh, Carol, is there anything that uh, you have, like, you know, as far as research that you would like to direct people to? Maybe I call it, like, game-changing research. That's, like, a, a research article that actually changes the way you practice. Do you guys – we'll start with Carol, but do you have anything that you've read lately that you would like to um, direct people to? Yes. I mean, other than the, the, the Tim Hewitt, the Mark Paterno, the Kevin Ford, mm -hmm. those studies um, that for me, those were kind of the foundations of what I started on in, in terms of ACL injury prevention and um, and kind of end stage rehab. Um, there was a couple of papers that have recently come out on uh, queuing on how we, we queue external versus internal um, extrinsic versus intrinsic cues um, in movement patterns. So not only do we need to address the movement pattern, we need to cue our patients in the right way. Um, so there's there's a couple of papers in JOSPT on that. Um, and if we need to, I can always cite articles or I don't know if you guys have a, a links page or something. Yeah, if you, if you email it to me, I'll put it in the uh, notes section on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We can, we okay. can do that. Um, because those, I think, in the past, um, I guess, five years or so. I don't, and, and Sylvia and I have had a lot of conversations because we've been at um, like CSM or other conferences where where these things have been addressed. So um, it, for me, that was something that not only was I, I was looking at movement, but was I really cueing it the right way? Was I telling somebody to point their knee forward during landing instead of saying, like, let's have your knee aligned with the middle of your shoe or throwing a, a cue on like a cone on the floor and having them line up their knee with that? So it's it's um, an externally focused cue. Um, that for me has been, I, I think a game changer. Okay. That's great. I'll, I look forward to reading that. Yeah, And I'd agree with you, Carol. Yeah. Carol, I totally agree with you on that one. Cause I think, you know, when, when we get people with such internally focused cues, 
that doesn't translate to what they have to do with some of the higher level activities. They can't think about, oh, I got to squeeze my glutes or I've got to, you know, think right. about the, you know, it has to be more instinctive and those external cues really do seem to get it for them um, a lot quicker actually than the internally focused cues that I was using from before. Yeah, it's kind of nice. They actually, they get results pretty quickly. <laughs> but right. Better retention is, is the goal, but any time that somebody can actually get that movement pattern, it's easier for the patient. It's, it's a heck of a lot easier for us, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, uh, us at Jet Set, we're very excited to have you guys teaching our course. Um, look forward to taking it myself as well as uh, meeting a lot of the people that are going to take it as well. And uh, before we sign off, I know you guys have uh, we have a Redskins game and a Cleveland Browns game to walk, get to, so we'll cut it short today. But anything else you'd want to add before uh, we sign off? No, I just I would personally just say thank you guys so much for for having us and letting Carol and I uh, talk today, and we're looking forward to the course. I think as much as you are. Okay, great. Absolutely. We really appreciate you guys inviting us out to do this course and, and on this podcast too. And mm-hmm. We've had a great time putting together the content so far. So we, I definitely can't wait to present it. All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. Special thank you to DeBlanco Beats for making our music. Hope to see you guys at a course soon. Check it out, jetsetrehabed.com. Thanks for listening.